On Shillkill, we pair a crypto with a riveting true crime case, weaving together the worlds of innovation and investigation. Today, we shed light on a groundbreaking project before delving into a dark mystery. Stay curious and ready for more. I'm Chip Mahoney, and this is Shillkill, a unique fusion of finance and mystery. If you're curious about crypto, and want to hear about a true crime case at the same time, you're in the right place. Today, it's a most mysterious pairing, Monero XMR and the Ketty murders case, a cold case for over 40 years with absolutely no movement. But today, I'm going to try to shed light where there has been none. And that's next here on Showkill. Thanks for tuning in. This is the audio version, but if you like video, there's Spotify and YouTube, TikTok and whatnot. So another reason to subscribe, come back for more because I will have more for you just about every new week, a new crypto to review paired with a true crime case, because this podcast is for true crime fans, but also people who are curious about crypto, first timers in crypto, new adopters. That's what it's here for. So If you know anyone else like yourself, curious about crypto and loves true crime, please share the podcast. Come back for more. I will always have more for you. If you have heard me before, and it wasn't just a drive-by, as I like to say, you're dropping the clip, pulling the crossover SUV back around on me. I do appreciate that. Know that I try to get bigger and better for you each and every time, often to give you a lot of good reasons for being here. I am a certified DeFi expert, and so I won't fire back on you with a bunch of technical jargon I know you do not need. You just need to know enough to make sound decisions. So the thing about crypto is just not to miss out on the opportunity, and don't miss out what I have for you next about Monero. Monero, ticker symbol XMR, is a top crypto project. It hovers right around the top 30 or so of all cryptos out there. But get this, it's been around for over 10 years because first there was Bitcoin and then Monero XMR. Today it trades around $150 a share and you can get it on a US exchange like Kraken. Can't get it on Coinbase, but if you chose to, you could do that with Kraken. Now, I'm not going to recommend that as a first-timer in crypto, someone's new to crypto, but if you chose to, you certainly could. But the reason for the review here is to give you an idea of this dark mystery in crypto, because I've got a dark mystery coming for you in the true crime, and this one is a dark mystery as well, because there's nothing like it, not even Bitcoin, not even Zcash, which is another project that's veiled in secrecy. But Monero is not only veiled in secrecy, it's shrouded in mystery. You don't know who started it. You don't know the wallet addresses. You don't know the amount sent. They have something called ring signatures that just make everything secret and you can't find out any information. You know, with Bitcoin, you could see wallet addresses. You could see amounts transferred. It's that ledger. 
And then with Zcash, technically you could audit it to see some information, but Monero, you can't see anything, which is why the, I think it's the IRS put a bounty out a few years ago for anyone who could crack this code because yeah, there's a lot of illicit transactions. I mean, that's going to happen, but you can't find out any information. And, and really that is the whole idea of crypto. And that's why I'm talking about it. Now, of course, I wouldn't recommend it to anyone. I don't even have it myself. Unless you're one of the OG people in crypto, then it might make sense to participate. But again, if you chose to, it's on Kraken, pretty easy to acquire that way. But it is veiled in secrecy, shrouded in mystery, and it is what crypto was meant for because today we have this hybrid effect. We have traditional finance coming into the market. They want to control things more and more. We see that with Bitcoin and the spot ETFs. And so crypto starts to look a lot more like traditional finance. Uh, and in traditional finance, there's always a middleman, someone who takes a fee, often for doing nothing. But that's just how things work. With Monero and the creation of crypto to begin with, these people, these secret people who created this stuff, didn't want any central trust or any central authority involved. It's like handing your friend a dollar and your friend gets that dollar and they just walk away and it's under the table. No one has to know about it. Well, how do you do that online or through technology? And that's what Monero is really about. Now, to understand this will really give you a perspective about other projects that you might see in the top 50 or top 100 on CoinMarketCap that you might be interested in. So that's what it's here for today, to understand that Monero is really what crypto is about. Everything else is sort of a hybrid and that middleman or that central trust is creeping into the transactions more and more to take a fee, uh, whether it's a small fee or a big fee, they want something, usually for nothing. So Monero, even though it's veiled in secrecy, it's a mystery, uh, there's nothing you could find out about it. It's not possible. Still, that's what crypto is. And that's why it's been around for so long. So when you look at Bitcoin, you might know that it is a proof of work consensus where the miners who mine the Bitcoin have to make those blocks. And that's how Bitcoin works. And when we're coming up to this bull run, they have this thing called the halving event where the rewards for miners are cut in half and that limits the supply and it's going to push the demand up. You're going to see the price go up. So Monero also works on a proof of work consensus. Miners mine that Monero, just like Bitcoin. And so in comparison to other projects out there, other blockchains or other graphs out there, which are called DAG uh, directed acyclic graphs, uh, they are in no way as fast as those things, but they're still uh, making those transactions work. Uh, and in crypto, it's a slow process through the proof of work consensus, but that's how crypto started, Bitcoin and Monero. So know that Monero is a proof of work consensus. And when you're looking at other projects or evaluating blockchains or looking at graphs, which I would recommend probably looking at graphs more than blockchains because of how fast they are and different from blockchains, 
you'll know that those things like Avalanche or other projects out there, they are super fast, super cost effective and efficient. And when you compare them with Monero or Bitcoin, you can see how slow they are. But this started over 10 years ago and everything wasn't created back then. It is an original. So Monero, in a way, in a weird way, is kind of more important than Bitcoin because Bitcoin is now more centralized than ever. You can see the transactions on the ledger. You can see the wallet addresses. You can see the amounts. And you have traditional finance already approved for the spot ETFs to control the market where they could manipulate the price fluctuation. They could... Uh, have something to say about price any day of the week, whether it's true or not. Monero still is what crypto was meant for, to keep the central trust away because the central trust is always talking about security and protecting you while they are putting their hand in your back pocket to take your money. They always put security and safety first in order to take something from you. So Monero... Even though illicit transactors are in this, yes, that is true. This is the essence of crypto. This dark mystery, this thing shrouded in secrecy, veiled in secrecy, and you're never going to be able to figure it out. Kind of reminds me of the true crime I'm going to talk about because 10 years in crypto that's like 40 years in real life. And the Ketty murders I'm going to talk about next is an unsolved case for over 40 years. No movement, veiled in secrecy, shrouded in mystery. Nobody knows anything more about it than they did 40 years ago. I'm going to share something with you that might shed some light on that case, or at least a new way to think about that. And that's next when I talk about the Ketty murders. Forty years is a long time to wait for justice in a murder case. This was a multiple murder that occurred in Ketty, California, which is a campground north of Quincy, California, in and around the Sierra Nevadas. It was April 11th, 1981, when a mother, her teenage son, and his teenage friend were brutally murdered inside of Cabin 28 in Ketty, that small campground area. The daughter of the mother, a 12-year-old, the sister to the brother, his name was John, she was taken from the cabin, and her remains weren't found until three years later at another remote area far away total mystery. Authorities do not know anything more than they did back then. And it's coming up to about 43 years now since this happened. So today I'm going to try to shed light where there has been none and give you an idea about what happened on that dark night in the remote area of Ketty. (laughs) 
Spring showers replenish the waterways near the Feather River, giving life to this picturesque landscape in Plumas County, about 140 miles northeast of Sacramento. But the rainfall can't wash away the horror of what happened on this now empty lot in the tiny resort town of Keddie 35 years ago. It's a case that's gathered far more dust than clues over the years. The Keddy Cabin murders from April 1981. Three people, including a single mother of five, Glenna Sue Sharp, her son John, and a family friend, Dana Wingate, were tied up, bludgeoned, and stabbed to death inside a tiny cabin in this resort-like community in Plumas County. Her 12-year-old daughter, Tina, was taken from the cabin and later killed. Current Sheriff Greg Hackwood was a teenager at the time and knew some of the victims. I knew uh, the two boys that were murdered. I worked with them the entire summer uh, before the before the murders. This is very personal. Special Investigator Mike Gamberg knew them as well. Dana was at my house the day before uh, the, uh, the homicide. The two boys are a key element to understanding what possibly could have happened in this case. An alternative idea, if you will, my classified theory that I will get to. But these boys hitchhiked a lot. That's how they got around. And if you remember the 70s and early 80s, that was commonplace. For a remote area like Keddy and even Quincy, I mean, I can just see how people could get around that way and have no problem with it, no stranger danger. So John and Dana got around a lot by foot. And in fact, the person who knew them and knew Dana said that Dana was at his house the day before, which would have been Friday, April 10th, 1981, because the murders took place sometime late night on the 11th on a Saturday. So that's how they got around. And they were hitchhiking on that day. They had already been in Quincy and they were heading back to Keddy, which is about five to six miles north of Quincy. And that's when the mother spots both the boys as she's going towards Quincy for baseball tryouts for one of her younger sons. She had a 10 year old and a five year old as well. And she picks the two boys up and then circles back to Keddy. That was about 3.30 PM, drops the boys off and then she heads back to Quincy. And I believe in that time frame that when the boys were hitchhiking back to Quincy, possibly two killers were driving that same route and picked them up. Now, Quincy is like the main vein of the area. And Dana, I believe, was a senior at the local school. And I think John was a junior. And I've read through the archives of the Feather River Bulletin because the bulletin was like the, the pulse of the community and had a strong distribution for the local area, Plumas County and other counties, and several other partner papers. They even had the countywide classifieds, which back in 1981 was pretty uh low cost and good reach for the locals to advertise just about anything that they wanted, including automobiles. So I'm going to get to that, but the, the bulletin says that the boys, uh, after the fact, you know, after the murders happened, 
Uh, the boys were spotted at Lawrence and Crescent Street at about 9.30 p.m. on Saturday. So they had hitched a ride back to Quincy. And my question is, who gave them a ride? Because if the killers were coming from as far as Greenville, for a reason I will tell you about, and they were heading down through the Ketty area to Quincy, for a reason I will tell you why they would be there as well, then they could have picked up John and Dana thumbing it down the road. And these are sadistic, opportunistic killers. And if they picked those two boys up and found out along that drive to Quincy who they were, where they were coming from, where they lived, then maybe they had learned information, what was in cabin 28 without ever being there or knowing those people, which would have been a mother and a teenage daughter, a 12-year-old, among other things. But if the killers drive John and Dana back to Quincy and learn this information and then drop them off, they also could have observed them there until a certain period of time and know that they couldn't get back to Ketty unless they hitched it back. So they were pretty much stuck there until they could do that. And the paper says until about 9.30 p.m. So if the killers are looking for a woman and they're looking for a 12-year-old, they know exactly where to shop for it. Cabin 28 in Ketty. And by the way, the two boys uh, who were there are in Quincy. And so the killers know that. So is that a possibility? Well, with my classified theory, I think it's a strong possibility because after 43 years, what else is there? In the countywide classified, which had a strong reach back then, which if you're going to advertise anything, you were going to use that. It was really one of the only things available, affordable, uh, and reached a lot of counties, Plumas County and several other counties there in the Sierra, uh, Sierra Nevada areas. So if you're going to advertise, that's the place to do it. And one of the advertisements was for a 1975 GMC van, which I believe is a Vandura. And they had a custom color back then, which was really popular, Hawaiian blue. Now, interesting, that was the only auto classified for months. And in fact, I did not find another one that did not have a phone number. It's the only one that you had to go see in person. And that might've been the reason why they were there in the first place. But also in Greenville, which was north of Caddy, was another van, a van conversion for twice the price. And if they had checked that out and then wanted to go to Quincy to check out the other one somehow, some way, then they would have been on that route during that time. But if they get that vehicle, if they buy that vehicle in Quincy, which you had to go to Ken's Tires to go do that, you had to see it in person, no other classified, no other uh, one without a phone number. They all had phone numbers. You had to go do that in person. If they did that, then if they used that van and dropped off their original vehicle, then when they head back to Ketty, they've got a van, but they've also got a vehicle the boys have not seen before. So if they know that the boys that they just picked up are still in Quincy because they're observing them, they know they 
haven't hitched it back and they have learned information about what's waiting them in Ketty, they want a woman and they want a 12 year old, then they just got it served up to them on a silver platter. And if they got that van, a 1975 Vandura in that Hawaiian blue, then when they go back to Ketty at whatever time, they know that when they go into that cabin, they have exactly what they want. So it's possible that 75 van was on their list to get it because in that classified it as well on the same day on April 11th up to 5 PM was another thing that I think they found attractive, which was a yard sale in gray Eagle for a 12 gauge Winchester shotgun. And for the killers who I think more than 50% that I think did this, these two guys, that was highly attractive. So it's a reason to make that road trip. It's a reason to go there. It's a reason to drive the distance, stop in Gray Eagle, stop in Quincy, go up to Greenville. In Greenville, there was a GMC or not a GMC, but a van conversion for twice the price. And maybe that's why they went up there. And then when they're coming back down, they would have gone to Quincy. But at some point, if they did that and saw those two boys, then they would have had learned information because if they went back to Ketty with a different type of vehicle and the neighbors spotted a green van, which in the dark of night without any uh, street lamps or anything like that, just moonlight in a dark wooded area, that Hawaiian blue would look more green rather than a typical green van, which I think would look more black, then that could have been the van that the neighbor spotted. And when John and Dana got a ride back and saw that van outside, they did not recognize those were the two same guys that had picked them up before because the vehicles were different. So I believe those two, the boys I'm speaking of, walked in on the mother who was already bound and the daughter or John's sister. They rushed Tina right out of the place maybe put her in the van and then either um, the guys I'm going to name, one of them came back the, through the uh, rear door of the cabin. And that's when the murders took place because they were there for Tina first. They wanted a 12 year old. They were there for the uh, woman or the mother second. They wanted a woman slave. And I'm going to tell you why. And the two boys coming in to that scene when the mother is bound, that was something that was a surprise. They weren't there for the boys, but as soon as that was interrupted, then everybody had to die. But Tina didn't have to die because they were there for her first. She was a primary target. So with the classified theory, I think the Feather River Bulletin is important to think about for 1981, hitchhiking to and fro, because one of the biggest distractions of this case is the name of the case itself, the Ketty murders. This is not about Ketty. Ketty is a remote area. I don't think the killers even knew what it was, but they learned about it. This case is more about Quincy. It's more about the heartbeat of what was going on there, where you wanted to go. And with the bulletin in the circulation distribution with the two guys that I'm going to mention, they were used to stalking people in the classifieds, showing up, 
to their properties, abducting families, doing the worst stuff you can imagine. The two type who are capable of this type of bloodbath. And in fact, the sketch that came out of it, if you look at that uh, in the link in the description to my Medium page, you'll also see the killers at that time who I'm going to name. And it's nearly spot on. It's more definitive than the two suspects in this case that they said uh, were the original suspects, those two that have passed away, that do not look anything to me like those sketches. And I know that the sketch artist had no training, but if they did, it would have been 100%. And that's next in uh, this episode, because I'm going to talk about those two and see if you think my classified theory holds any weight. Not only one, but two killers on the road, on a road trip, maybe up to Gray Eagle for that yard sale in that Winchester, maybe to Quincy for that GMC van equipped for off-road and bed cabinets, or maybe up to Greenville as well to check out the van conversion for twice the price and finding it wasn't worth it and to go back down, back to Quincy through Ketty. Did two killers on the road spot John and Dana hitching a ride, give them a ride to Quincy, learn that information and start plotting to going up to Ketty to find out what was in cabin 28 because one of them was looking for a woman slave and also a 12 year old. Was it the two guys I'm going to mention here because one of them was only available in 1981. Otherwise he was in jail because a year after Ketty, almost to the date, Charles Ng was locked up in Leavenworth from 82 to 84. As soon as he got released in 84, he was back with his slave master, Leonard Lake, and they abducted a family in San Francisco through the classified for a stereo. They showed up at the property, took the family, took them to that dungeon, did what they did, only the remains were found later on. That's what these guys did. 1981 is the only time Charles Ng was available. So that's what I think could have happened here. Leonard Lake, Charles Ng on a road trip, maybe from Willsieville, Ukiah, I don't know, but we do know about the cabin in Willsieville in the dungeon. And maybe because of the bulletin and the countywide classified and that distribution that it reached into Calaveras County, where Willsieville is, not sure about that, but that Winchester would be highly attractive to someone like Charles Ng, who was a military deserter and in 1980 was a fugitive from the military for stealing military weapons. And Leonard Lake was harboring him as a fugitive. 
They met through a survivalist ma uh, magazine through an advertisement. And Charles Ng himself targeted a gay man one time in San Francisco through a classified ad, murdering that man in his property and almost his roommate as well. So they hunted the classifieds. Uh, they found their victims there. They found the items that they wanted. Uh, they stole uh, vehicles. They stole identities. Uh, not unusual for Leonard Lake, the slave master, to impersonate another person using their ID, whether he had killed them or not. So maybe that's how they showed up and represented themselves, maybe looking at a GMC van that I think would have been highly attractive for someone like Lake, who was already on record. Well, not at that time, but later on record for trying to steal a van from another person. And if you are abducting people, more than one, a van is something that uh, you would want, one of the tools of the trade. That GMC van had bed cabinets. It was set up for off-road, for a lot of road travel. It was half the price of that van conversion. Those were the only two ads uh, for vans. And again, that 1975 GMC van was the only one without a phone number for months. I did not find another one without a number to call. You had to go see it. First advertised April 1st edition of the Bulletin, 1981. By April 15th, the murderers were leading the news. So April 1st on a Wednesday is when it first got advertised. And then the van conversion uh, with that also on April 8th. And so that Winchester as well at that yard sale up till 5 p.m. on the 11th could have been enticing to someone like uh, Charles Ng who couldn't get a gun otherwise because his motto was like, uh, what was it? No gun, no fun, I think. And even when he was uh, in prison for, I think, the final time, because he still is alive on death row, he drew his own sketch of a remains department teasing investigators about whom they had killed. Now, Tina's remains were found in Feather Falls three years after the murderers in a remote location that only survivalists could traipse around in. And that's what these two guys were. So was Charles Ng somebody who made that call about the remains or tipped somebody off to it? Uh, because they like to tease investigators that way. And in fact, in one of his sketches, he wrote about a remains department. Now, in the sketch of the two suspects, I said that it it really is spot on for me for Lake and Ng. And if you go to the link in the, the medium that I have in the description here, you'll see the map, you'll see the details, you'll see the classifieds, and you'll also see the sketch. You'll see what uh, Charles Ng looked like, but also Leonard Lake without the fuzzy beard, because in 1981, he just had the mustache. That's how he, he looked. And Charles Ng was five foot six and Lake, I believe was around five foot 10 or 11. So more than anything, or more than the other suspects that were named in this that died years ago, I think not only look like Charles Ng and Leonard Lake, but with the classified theory in how also Lake and Ng operated and did what they did, they hunted the classifieds. And so I think it's possible that the countywide classifieds were in their possession and therefore they can find things that they were looking for. And when they showed up, rather than making a phone call, 
and could just show up for something, then that was all the better because they could surprise people a lot and get the jump on them. So maybe that's the reason to be in the area at that time. And because they're sadistic and opportunistic, if they pick up those boys hitching a ride to Quincy and they learn information, then maybe that is the motive to go to Ketty because on the dungeon tapes, Leonard Lake is on record where Charles Ng is filming him that he says himself he is attracted to girls as young as 12. He says that. He makes that statement. And this is around 1984, 1985. Ketty murders have already taken place. But how would Leonard Lake know that if he had never done that before? Because how would a person know that they have a preference for a certain food if they've never tasted it before? So Leonard Lake doesn't admit to saying as young as 10 or 11 or 13. He says as young as 12, and then he talks about something else. So that uh, says to me that he's already abducted a 12-year-old. Now, among all the victims uh, that they found at the uh, the dungeon and all the uh, the notebooks found that were unearthed, they found a lot of information, but they also found that uh, there were about twice as many victims of record that uh, they were known for. So if they did Ketty, that's three bodies uh, pretty much right away, and then a fourth body. And so of their their body count of around 10 or 12, then in 1981, they at least get three or four right away. And so they had a few more months, maybe uh, the remainder of the year to kill other people before April of 1982 and Charles Ng gets busted and caught and uh, sent to Leavenworth. So I think... It's very possible that they learned information what was in cabin 28. And when Lake was thinking about that he was attracted to girls as young as 12, he found out there was a 12-year-old in that cabin. There was also a woman that he could have for a woman slave, which was part of his Miranda ladies or his Miranda fantasy. And you, of course, can learn more about that online. So I think that's what put them there as a motive. Because the original motive was to get a Winchester gun, find out what else was there. Because if someone's got a gun at a yard sale, what other guns they got? Did they have a BB gun there? And then that GMC van, I think it's something that was like bait to them. And they had to go check it out. And maybe they were available. Maybe they were on the road at that time because those sketches point to them. This type of crime points to them. The only guys that could do this, I don't know if somebody who was close to this family would have bound the mother. If they had some sort of vendetta against her, I think they would just killed her. And then, as I say in my notes that you can check in the description, that the other boys, the younger boys in the other room, whether the killers knew about them or not, sleeping in that room really didn't matter because. They were just there for Tina as a primary and the mother as a secondary. But when the boys showed back up and didn't recognize the van outside, they didn't know the two guys that had given them a ride before were inside. That's why when they walked in, there was an argument because that was a surprise to everybody. 
And I do believe that Lakening were trying to get out of there somehow, some way within a time frame. But as soon as that happens, one of them, maybe Charles Ng or something, takes Tina out the back door, maybe in the van, comes back quickly, and everybody had to die. But I do believe they wanted that woman slave because that's what they had in the dungeon. That's what they had in the dungeon. And Leonard Lake is on record saying that he is attracted to girls as young as 12. How would he know that if he had never done that? How would you know or a person know they liked a certain food if they never tasted it? They'd have to taste it first. And that's what I'm saying here. So I think the classifieds possibly were in the hands of Leonard Lake and Charles Ng. 1981 was the only time, really, that... Ng was available to work with Lake. A year after Ketty, he was busted, sent to prison. As soon as he gets out in 1984, they get to work. And that's what they're known for. All those victims that they got from 1984 to like 1985 or so. And then the record books of other victims they had. Well, how did they get other victims after that? It had to have happened before. But uh, Charles Ng and Lake only met in 1980. And he was a fugitive. Lake was harboring a fugitive. So they had a limited amount of time if they had twice the victims and their MO was what they did where they abducted families, they killed infants, they they took slaves. I mean, that's what we have here, in my opinion. If they learn that information about what was in Ketty, that it served up for them. There's a 12-year-old there and there's a woman there. And these two boys that we gave a ride to Quincy are still here and they got to hitch back Who's going to give them a ride on a Saturday night back? They're going to be here all night. If they buy that van, they leave the original vehicle that they're traveling in in Quincy, take the van up there to Ketty, then they can commit what they're going to do. But those boys got to ride back. And then they came back into the neighborhood. They don't recognize the van, but when they step inside the cabin, they recognize the guys that gave them a ride earlier. Everybody had to die. What do you think about that? Please check out the link in the description to my Medium page with the map, details, more information, pictures of the classified to see if this classified makes any sense. Because after 43 years, what else is there? This Chip Mahoney. Hope you like my parents today on Show Kill. I'll have more for you. But on this one, I'm out. Thank you. Don't forget to subscribe and join us again as we uncover the fascinating connection between two seemingly disparate worlds. Until next time.